Hello, hi. Uh, I'm Josiah, and I'm here to uh, read you the cool story uh, from Daniel 3. Uh, it is a bit long, but uh, yeah, follow along. Uh, and can some context, uh, 60 cubits is like 90 feet, and 6 cubits is like 9 feet, so that's it. All right, let's start. The image of gold and the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But... There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. 
He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a, head of, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I declare, decree, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the cool, powerful, and awesome story of God. Amen. Well done, Josiah. I love that story. Uh, before I begin, though, I'd like to give a special uh, welcome to some guests that uh, I haven't seen for a while. And that is uh, Ian and Wei Ma, and they're sitting in the back there. He, Ian and Wei used to be at the church here uh, with us as part of the community, and they, they left to go overseas as missionaries full-time 10 years ago, basically. He resigned, it's almost 10 years, it would have been 10 years this March coming. Yeah, and so uh, if those of you who know Ian, um, go and say, and, and, and Wei, and say hello to them, make sure... And if you don't know them, go and greet, introduce yourself because they'd love to meet you. Because <laughs> uh, Ian and Way's heart is here with this whole church. You guys were in the Cantonese service before, right? So, yeah, he had, they both have this whole church mentality, and, and, and he taught that to me, too, at a Chinese church. Yeah, appreciate that. This story is awesome. I, I love Daniel because of the stories, and the reason why is because God's glory is revealed in such significant ways through the, the stories of Daniel and his friends, these three friends that Josiah said so smoothly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and, you know, you say that three times real fast, your tongue twists a little bit. But he, he, he practiced, and that was great to hear this story with inflection. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story really challenges us to ask a question of ourselves that was quite asked of them, too, because they were faithful to their, their devotion to the Lord God Almighty, even when they were facing death and being told that they need to renounce their faith and follow and uh, worship this golden idol and the other gods that the Babylonians worshipped. But they, they stood firm. They did not. And so that same question challenges us when we read this story and hear this story. In a sense, what would you do if someone, or what would we do if someone put a gun to our head and said, renounce your faith, otherwise you will die? What would we do in that kind of crazy situation? Or, in another way, what would we do if someone put a gun to someone else's head that we love and said, renounce your faith, otherwise they will die? That 
as well. What would we do? This is crazy to think about this, but it really is a question that comes up and confronts us when we read this story. And one reason why it's so inspirational to us when we read it and see these three men standing up for what they knew to be true. What would we do in their situation? It's interesting. If you could throw up the slides there, Tina. Thank you. It's interesting that 16 years ago, uh, there was this article written in Time Magazine by a guy named David Biema and Jeff Chu. And they wrote this article in Time Magazine called, Does God Want You to Be Rich? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because this question that this story brings up to us really challenges us in the sense of how much or what are we willing to give in following the Lord Christ. And this article touches on that, at least from this survey that they cited in their article of Christians in specifically the United States. And here's some of the results of uh, the article. Oh, it's already up there. Uh, 61% of the Christians believed God wants people to be financially prosperous, basically rich, right? 48% of Christians believe Jesus was not rich and we should follow his example. 49% believe Jesus, I mean, Christians don't do enough for the poor, and then 57% don't, did not believe that 10% is the minimum God expects Christians to give. Well, we could get into those specifics, but you can see from these survey results that many Christians at that time, 16 years ago, and I would say it's similar, if not even these numbers might be a little higher in some cases, um, that this had this expectation that God would bless us financially if we follow him. Basically, we will become more wealthy, but at the same time, we're supposed to, as followers of Jesus, to live and give generously and to live simply, like Jesus lived. And unfortunately, there are a few Christians who live simply and give generously and, while being financially wealthy. The average, though, weekly church donation, if we look at the Christians in this country in general, has down nearly 1% since the Great Depression. So there's been these studies, and in the 1930s, that's a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, in the Great Depression time, that, uh, the people gave 3.3% of their total income, so well below 10%, as <laughs> that 57% mentioned. And today's faithful has dropped to... 2.5%. So the average, quote, proclaimed follower of Jesus gives 2.5% of their income to, to the church, to the charitable things that are faith missions and things like that. Are we willing to give everything for the Lord Jesus? And Jesus said very clearly to his followers and also to us in Luke 14, 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything has, he has cannot be my disciple. And someone once said that actually dying for Jesus is easier than living for Jesus. And of course, dying for Jesus is really hard. But living for Jesus is even harder in that sense. Jesus wants us to give him everything because there is nothing further than that is between us and him that we hold on to. We're free to follow him. It's interesting, another story uh, that follows the Hurricane Katrina, which was in 2005. Uh, many of you weren't alive at that point or were very young. 
uh, where you probably don't remember this, but it was devastating because a lot of New Orleans, you see the city in the background there, the whole area was flooded and many houses were flooded up to their roofs. So if you were in your house and you didn't leave, <laughs> you were in big trouble. And so this Chicago Tribune reporter, Lolly Bowen, wrote about several churches in that area uh, that were scattered because of the hurricane and all the devastation. And this one pastor, uh, she wrote about Reverend Michael Mill, who pastored a church uh, called the White Dove Fellowship International Outreach Center. That's, that's a mouthful there. And, and he was preaching his first sermon following the hurricane to 300 people that had gathered. Now, his church was usually, on an average Sunday, 3,000 people that gathered together uh, to worship. But this time, the first sermon after the hurricane was 300. And Reverend Mill offered this perspective from a Christian perspective based on his understanding and what he was encouraging his church to understand this huge tragedy that hit him. And he said, we used to sing Jesus, sing to Jesus that Jesus is all we need, but now he's all we got. Because many of them just lost everything. See, Jesus wants us to live like he's all we got. That's it. Because everything we have is already his anyway, in reality. And he's just loaning it to us or providing it to us as stewards for us to take care of while we have it. It's, we don't own anything, really. It's all his. And we're to live like we own nothing because nothing is ours to begin with. So I'm going to go through this second part of the story again because st great stories are just meant to be told again and again and again. So I'm going to start in verse 19, but I'm not going to display it up on the screen. So if you have your Bible, please turn it on or open it up and then, or you can just listen to me tell the story, the second half. So the story picks up right after these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say, no, we're not going to bow down to your idol. And we believe our God can save us, and he has the power to do so, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. So, picking up in verse 19 of Daniel chapter 3. And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. So that must mean that he felt positive about them because of, you know, chapter 2 and 1. So he was, at least knew who they were. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing fire or furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then, the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, though I'm sure it was quite a distance because the other guys got killed getting close. And he, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their body, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So if we backtrack a little bit here, we see something uh, similar to Nebuchadnezzar's response to these things. He's very extreme in his responses. Um, first, when he says, everyone must worship this image that we have created, you know, uh, in a sense as a symbol of his greatness. And remember, this is, this is uh, after chapter 2. In this occurrence. So the, the head of gold, remember, and how God said to Nebuchadnezzar that that head of gold in that vision you saw is you and your greatness. And so he, it's like, in a sense, by bowing down and worshiping this idol is almost pledging allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar as the king, to follow him as the king, acknowledge him and his greatness. So, so he can see no reason for refusal to worship this and bow down and worship this idol as he requested. And he does not hesitate to do brutal punishment if you don't. And as a result, we saw in verse 7, it says, as soon as they heard, meaning all the people there, they fell down and worshiped the image. This response was total and immediate, and it was a no-brainer for everyone. And the one question comes up, if you guys haven't thought of it yet, where's Daniel? Did you guys, anybody think of that in this story? Where's Daniel? He's his three friends. Chapter 2 is Daniel and his three friends. But where's Daniel here? Did he bow down? No, no, I don't think so. We don't, we don't know where Daniel is. He doesn't even mention it. So we can only guess that knowing Daniel and who he is in this book, that he was not present now. He must be off in another location, away from this scene at this moment. Not a part of this story. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had all kinds of reasons at their disposal to think of some justification of why they should bow down, why they could bow down uh, to worship this golden image. They could have said something like, look, you know, if we get ourselves killed just by, you know, not bowing down, then who is going to look after the exiles of the Jews here in Babylon? You know, if we're dead, then nobody's going to really be looking after them like we can. So we, we got to survive. So at least we'll just, we'll just go through these motions and bow down. Or they could have said, well, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians. We're just trying to fit in so we can stay relevant with the culture here and make some influences and differences over time. And God will excuse us this time. Or they could have said, you know, we'll bow down, but we won't actually worship this idol. We're really going to worship Yahweh in our hearts, our, our Lord God, but we'll outwardly just be, you know, like an actor, you know, does. Just acting this worship. Because Yahweh will really see what's in our hearts. Or they could have said, the king gave us these really sweet jobs of influence. Uh, you know, said us, they had some 
responsibilities in Babylon already. And uh, so we should be grateful and we should just bow down to his image, you know, kind of like saying thanks to him. And uh, so they could have thought all these things, these rationalizations, but they knew that any of these rationalizations would, against, would have gone against God's word. And the word that they knew well uh, in, in Exodus chapter 20, the second of the Ten Commandments that God gave to the Israelites, saying, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am jealous, a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This one thing that's crystal clear throughout Scripture is that God's people, which includes us, is not to bow down to any other God and worship any other God but the Lord God himself. That's, there's no compromise on this. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted God in this situation. And verse 28 is the key verse of this chapter, I would say, because of what King Nebuchadnezzar himself proclaims. And he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to rescue his servants. And they trusted in him and defied the king's command, which was his command. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Notice at this point, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand that this God that they worship is really the only God, the true and living God, and all the other gods are false. But he's now saying, wow, this God is the powerful God. He's like the biggest dude on the block. And uh, you don't want to mess with him. So this, we see this story is inspirational because we see that these men of God stand up for what is true and right. And even more so, how God reveals himself in this unique and powerful way to everyone that is there and witnesses this. And you can believe this story was told verbally over and over again in that whole area. Yeah, it, it, you know, you take this and imagine what, how God revealed himself and you think of what other ways could he have revealed himself, right? Maybe he could have uh, destroyed the furnace with some like powerful wind and blew it over before they threw the three of them in and just, wow. Or he could have told or had Nebuchadnezzar get a heart attack right after. He's like, throw them in the, uh, 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 and just fall over. You know, that would have been dramatic too, right? And then they would have been spared. Or maybe this huge rain cloud would just hover right over the furnace and douse it out with water and all the steam and everything comes and, you know, all this stuff. He could have just got rid of the threat of the furnace. But he didn't choose to do that. Instead, he let these three men be bound and tied up and tossed into the furnace and then preserved them in the furnace. And this is the key to understanding how God often reveals his power in life that we experience. And if anything of this message you remember, remember this. 
The Lord often reveals himself to us and others in the midst of the fire rather than by extinguishing the flames. He often reveals himself to us and others in the midst of our fires in life rather than taking them away and extinguishing them. There was no sense, if you look at these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of entitlement. And what I mean by that is they didn't think like, man, we've been so faithful to you, God, and here we are in this situation. You've got to save us, man. You have to do it because of, you know, who we are. We've, we've been so faithful to you all these years. And, you know, because they've gone through this training, we saw those stories before, and they, they stood up and said, we're not going to defile ourselves with the certain foods of the king. And, you know, all these things, the stance they took, and now here we are again, being threatened to be killed because we're worshipers of the one true God. No, they didn't have any of this thinking at all. They absolutely believed God could save them from the fiery furnace. But they absolutely did not think that God should save them from the fiery furnace. Did you hear what I said? He could, but he, he didn't need to. Often we pray for God to relieve our suffering. And so we feel better. I mean, and naturally, I don't want to suffer. Anybody here want to suffer? <laughs> you, you do? Somebody raise their hand over here? Yeah, we, we can arrange for that, you know. <laughs> Suffering's pretty common in life in so many different ways. But God instead reveals himself more intimately to us by being in his presence, sending his presence into our hearts and our minds and the reality of this physical life we have in the midst of our suffering. Whatever it may be, he reveals himself to us and others this way. The Apostle Paul touches on this truth when he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, there's times the Lord will not take away your suffering or my suffering, but he instead will help us understand his heart even more so through that suffering. Because he is with us, intimately with us. And then we will be able to share the fellowship, then have that fellowship of the sharing of his sufferings until we are becoming like him in his death. So there are times now when we experience whatever it is, or maybe you're experiencing something now that's really hard. Know that the Lord God is there and wants to be intimate with you if you would just look to him in this time. Whether it's mental anguish, physical sickness or disability that you're, you're facing or frustrated about, or family relational issues that, are, that just seem unfair, or whatever it may be. It all kinds of suffering. Listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Whoops. Dear friends, do not be surprised. At the painful trial, you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, suffering is one of the key ways 
that God uses in this reality before eternity and the new age to come because there won't be any suffering then. But now he uses the suffering that we face to help mature us and grow into the be more in the likeness of himself in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And oftentimes, the focus of our faith is often about alleviating the suffering. Because, yeah, <laughs> who wants to suffer? I don't want to suffer. But whether it, it, it could be, our suffering could be persecution or hardships in life or tragedies that we face or sickness, but God wants us to mature in that suffering. Even though it's unpleasant, undesirable, it's often the way he actually gets our attention because he strips everything else that we're away that we're holding on to. He wants to get our attention. And it's during our times of suffering and hardships that God demonstrates then his mercy, his glory, and his power. Think of the, suffer the suffering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had gone through up to this point in their life. Just think about it. What had happened to them so far? And they were pretty young men at this point. Their country had been invaded by the Babylonians and defeated and conquered. They were forcibly removed from their home as slaves to be brought to Babylon, the, the capital city of the, their new masters. And then they were forced to be in this training program for three years to serve the king. They didn't have any choice in that. Think of how traumatic that was for them. And they could have easily given up on their faith, except for one key thing, is that none of this was a big surprise to them if they knew what God had warned all of Israel about earlier. And God had warned them through the prophets that this was going to happen to you because you are rebelling against me. And they knew that. So they saw, amazingly, that through all this tragedy and suffering that was happening to them and their people, that God was working in his way through all of this. That is a key thing to always keep in mind that when, you know, when we say it hits the fan, you know, it, it realizes there's no big surprise to God. Actually, he's pl already planned for that and he's working his way through it. And this is in line with the heart and meaning of Job. When Job says from his heart in Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Because as we sang, we know that God is good and his love is great. Does that change no matter what kind of junk we're dealing with in life? No. This world is not good. <laughs> and love is hard to find in this world except for the love of Christ. That is real love. Can we say with a sincere heart like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Praise be to God. That's, that's tough. Whether we're employed or unemployed, whether we're single or we're married, whether we're rich or we're poor, whether we're healthy or we're plagued with chronic sickness in some way. Our hearts praise the Lord because he is good and nothing and nobody can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, in 1837, I, I like this story of three young Meth Methodist ministers named Calvert, Hunt, and Jagger. 
and their three wives uh, went with them from England to the Fiji Islands. Now, this is in 1837. So the, these islands uh, were a difficult assignment because the, the people that lived in these islands were still cannibals. And the first three years of the ministry there, there wasn't really much progress. And so the captain of the ship that was taking these three couples, these English couples, to the islands was trying his best to convince them not to go because he said to them, to Calvert, he said specifically, if you go there and work among these people, you're going to die. And those people with you are going to die. And then Calvert simply said in response to him, well, we died before we came. In a sense, we are dead in Christ and we are made alive in Christ. The new life we have is Christ himself. And he calls for his followers to live with him like he's all we got. Because that's more than enough. I mean, if he can save these three men from a fiery furnace, I wonder what they were talking about in there, those four guys. You know, one, you're, you're, you're thrown in their furnace and you're okay. And then, boo, this dude appears with you. I think he was Jesus. He was right there. I'd have so many questions. One, like, what's happening? <laughs> you know? And then just ask him so many questions. It would be, it would be amazing. What are we holding on to? What are we not willing to let go of that is preventing us from seeing God in the midst of our sufferings and troubles and hardships in life, our disappointments? We're not letting go of life as we think it should be and inviting Jesus, who is the life, to help us experience the abundant life that he tells us about and offers to us. Because following the Lord Jesus is a life of adventure. You don't have to go to the military to have an adventure. You just follow Jesus. It's a life of adventure and excitement that you won't, you won't believe if you haven't already done so. It's not a life of slavery to a list of do's and don'ts. No, Jesus gives us true freedom to live with joy and hope and excitement for the today and, and for the future. And that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could say with true freedom, we will not bow down to your idol. But our God could save us. He has the power to do so. But even if he doesn't do so, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. And they felt free to do that because they have freedom in what the Lord God and the life he gives. And we can do the same. In the same way, we could have the freedom to say to our boss at work, you know, I am no longer going to work these insane hours all the time because I have to keep this job. No, I have a higher... <laughs> purpose in life than just trying to keep my job and so work insane hours all the time. Or we have the freedom to say to our boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, I really like you, but this relationship is leading me away from my Lord Jesus. So it ends here. Or we have the freedom to say to our friends, you know, I choose no longer to participate in some of these activities we're doing because they dishonor my Lord Jesus. And so I'm not going to participate in these things with you anymore. See, Jesus gives us the freedom, the true freedom to live when we follow him, really follow him. So do you want to be free? Do you feel free now in your life? Do you feel the sense of inner joy when you get up in the morning and you're like, another day to live for my Lord Jesus? Do you feel like that in the sense of knowing and living in his presence to give your whole heart and following the Jesus as Lord and obeying his teachings? 
Jesus is the life. And he's also the way and the truth, if you remember that verse. But he's the life. And I remember deciding to follow Jesus back in 1980. I was 14 years old. And I just told you how old I was. But 1980. And life has been super exciting in so many ways since then. Not every period of time, of course. There's some moments that weren't so exciting and suffering and things like that. But it's been really an abundant life. The Lord brought me into my life. And I've been a pastor now for about 30 years or so. You know, what? will we follow Jesus or not? This is a question that hits us every single day, and it hits myself. Every day I wake up and face situations, and I have to ask myself again, will I follow Jesus or not in this situation? It's just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had to decide. What are we going to do if we are in that situation like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, actually, every day is that situation. Because if we don't follow Jesus consistently, then we are not following Jesus. And that will cost us our life. It's only by following Jesus as Lord that we will have our lives saved. Because he is the Savior. So confess our sins. Accept his salvation that he offers freely. And follow Jesus who is the life. And when we follow Jesus wholeheartedly, then our hardships and our struggles in life become simply God's opportunities to reveal his glory to us and the others around us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and just the encouragement it is to us because you have preserved it and then you confirm it by your living word, your spirit that resides within us who follow you, that it is true, that you are true, and that you enable us to continue to get a foretaste of the life that you have for us here and now, the foretaste of the freedom that you offer where we don't have to walk around feeling shame or sorry that we did things that were dishonoring to you, that we have to make it up in some way. No, we are free. There's no longer any condemnation for those of us who follow you in Christ Jesus because you took that on yourself. Help this truth deeply give us a foundation on which to stand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.